after several months, I came across this document put out by some industrial company, a maker of silica fume, and it warned the users, keep the container tightly closed, otherwise it will absorb CO2 from the air. That's when the Eureka moment came up. We used Ferroc as the binder, an iron-based binder, and crushed glass bottles as our aggregate, and our only aggregate, no sand, no gravel. Ferroc can bend more without breaking, and it can take more stress without bending. In other words, it holds together more cohesively, and they call that flexural strength. And that is also related to its greater toughness and its greater crack resistance. So if, even if there is a little crack created, Farrakh will not break apart as readily as Portland's and mine. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today, we have with us David Stone, inventor of Ferroc, carbon negative building material. Welcome, David. He joins us from Tucson, Arizona. Welcome, David. Thank you. Cement in its modern version was invented in 1824 by Joseph Asden, and he invented what we now call as Portland cement. We see cement in products all around us. What are the key ingredients that go into making cement? Well, the primary ingredient most people don't realize is limestone, which is a rock. It's related to marble. It's a sedimentary rock made up of calcium carbonate. And it was formed primarily by organisms in the past, such as seashell-bearing organisms that laid down vast amounts of calcium carbonate that they made out of the seawater to make their shells. So that is now mined out of deposits, so-called deposits of calcium carbonate, or limestone or marble, and then it's crushed up. But, and here is the real problem, it's not just crushed and used, it has to be heated to extremely high temperature. What temperature approximately? About 1400 degrees centigrade. So it's the kind of heat required to break down the calcium carbonate. Carbonate is basically carbon and three oxygen atoms. So within that, there's a carbon and two oxygen atoms, CO2. And at a certain temperature, like 1400 degrees, the CO2 leaves and it leaves one oxygen behind and the calcium behind, calcium oxide, lime, what we call lime. Mm -hmm. And now that material is very reactive and it reacts with other materials that are mixed in with it, like clay and iron. And when it goes through this high temperature in a kiln, which is this giant rotating tube with something like a jet engine at one end, creating all this heat from combustion, raises the temperature, breaks down that rock. They call it calcination, to calcine it. And that's the problem with Portland cement. Not to get too wrapped up in all the chemistry, that process of both burning the fuel and driving off the CO2 from the calcium carbonate creates lots of greenhouse gas. 
In fact, one ton of CO2 gas for every ton of Portland cement. And a ton of Portland cement is maybe the size of, oh, a large dresser or bureau, but a ton of CO2 is the size of a small building. So all of that gas, that cloud of CO2 is given off, you know, every few minutes at a kiln. Say they create a million tons of Portland cement every year. That means a million tons of CO2. And there are thousands of cement plants around the world creating thousands of millions of tons of CO2. So how much of the carbon dioxide emissions in our atmosphere is because of the cement industry? Of the total output, if you could call it that, the total pollution generation of the entire world per year, of that, about 6 or 7% comes from Portland cement. So it's greater than many countries, you know, not as much as China or the United States or the European Union or India, but a sizable amount. The problem is that it's difficult to change the cement making process so that it does not produce that. Often people get confused or interchange concrete with cement. So what is concrete? That's a very good question, and it's important to clear that up. Cement, Portland cement, is the binder, the so-called binder that holds all the aggregate together. And the aggregate is chunks of stuff like sand and gravel are the most common aggregate. Mm -hmm. So if you add sand and gravel together with water, which is the other primary ingredient, you get wet sand and gravel, but they won't stick together. You can make a sandcastle with wet sand, but you cannot make a building or beams or a road. Portland cement is the binder, the glue that holds the sand particles together with the gravel chunks together, and it's all activated by the water. So concrete is the combination of Portland cement, sand, gravel, and water. So when we see those mixers going on our road, they are basically mixing the cement with the sand and gravel, ready to be used at the construction site. Yes, ready mix is what they refer to that. The mix is ready, they call it ready mix for short, ready to come out of the truck and be poured onto the site, into the forms, and then vibrated and trawled out. The actual mixing starts at the plant, where they put all the ingredients together. The truck is turning to keep it mixed and to keep it from setting up. It would be a real problem if that concrete just sat in the truck and then hardened up, because then somebody has to go in and chisel it all out. So the trucks keep turning, keep the mix fluid. I heard you refer to cement as Portland cement. Is that the only kind of cement? Actually, no. There are different types. Portland cement got its name because it resembled the limestone near Portland, England, when Joseph Aspin first invented the mix, or maybe soon thereafter. The pearly gray color of it reminded the people there in England, in that area, of the Portland limestone, Portland cement. So it's just a geographical you know, coincidence that it happened to arise there. It's Portland is the name of the town nearby that was associated with a limestone deposit of the similar color. So that's, that's how it got its name. But there are other cements, 
And there's a cement fondue, there are calcium aluminates, there are um, sulfur-based cements, but it's one of those developments of the business world that because Portland cement dominates so much, people typically refer to all cement as Portland cement. Before Joseph Aspen invented cement, what did the ancient people use? The Romans, for instance, you know, they build these roads. There's this very famous highway going down from Rome to Florence, and they build bridges, they build aqueducts, you know, so many things people build before 1824. What did they use? The Romans used what we now call Roman cement. So, yes, you're right. There was ancient versions of cement. Were they as harmful? Did they also release CO2? Well, based on what we know of how they were made, yes. But of course, in all of the Roman Empire, I'm sure they didn't create anywhere near as much cement as one modern plant creates. And that's part of the issue. Let me emphasize that. If there was only a few cement plants per country, per large country, that would not be a problem. But because Portland cement, to make concrete, which is as often described as the most commonly used material on the face of the planet, except for one, water. Mm -hmm. After water, Portland cement dominates. More concrete with Portland cement in it is used than all other building materials combined. You know, the Romans used an early form. It's sometimes called pozzolan cement, another name that comes from the local geography. There was um, a volcano in that area that would spew all this ash. And when mixed with water, it had a cementitious aspect. It, it started to harden and stick together. So the volcano was their natural cement kiln, making a very fine ash with all of that heat that they could use. And then they learned to mix it with other ingredients like clay. Mm-hmm. An interesting part of the story is that between the Roman cement and the modern Portland cement from England, it was a lost art for many centuries until it was rediscovered by Joseph Aspden in England in the early 1800s. So you were a student in Arizona at the University of Arizona, was it? Yes, at the University of Arizona here in Tucson in environmental science. You got your PhD and what was the topic of your PhD? The topic was basically, in one word, iron, environmental iron chemistry. And when you say environmental iron chemistry, that often means something related to rust, what we call rust, rust minerals. Mm-hmm. Most people think of rust like they might think of dirt or grime. It's just some kind of nasty, degenerating material. Like an aberration. Yeah, it's like um, things falling apart. But actually, rust is metallic iron returning to its natural state of various minerals. There's like 13 different kinds of rust. I say it's the natural state of iron because on a planet like ours, on Earth, with water and oxygen, metallic iron is not stable. It will return to an oxidized form that we call initially, when we first see it, appear rust. The orange rust has some fancy and unfamiliar names like Gertite and lepidocrosite. Lepidocrosite as in leopard, the color of leopards, an orange color. 
the early Greeks and Latin-speaking scientists named all these minerals. Was this rust used for anything? That's probably the central question that dominates my intellectual professional life. What can you do with rust? It's something that needs to be stopped. And billions of dollars are spent every year to stop the rusting process. Even from your cars? Infrastructure. The Biden administration is going to spend a trillion dollars repairing infrastructure. A lot of that has to do with the rusting of steel, which is mostly iron. It's like 99% iron with some carbon in it. That process, as I say, returning to the natural mineral state of oxide minerals in an oxygenated atmosphere is a constant enemy of our modern industrial civilization. Mm -hmm. There's a book about rust called The Longest War, and people have been fighting it for as long as there's been an industrial revolution for the last 300 years. But Ferroc is one example of making use of rust. Talk about how you came across this chemical process which led you to think of this application of using Ferroc instead of cement. I'd love to be able to say I imagined it all in some kind of scientific vision of how things might work. Like a eureka moment? Well, the re eureka moment came after the fact. Sometimes scientists, very good scientists, better scientists than myself, can imagine how things might work. You know, Einstein was the greatest example of how nature actually works. In my case, not being Einstein, I was trying to do the opposite of what actually happened. I was trying to keep iron particles from rusting. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there was some indication, some evidence of that happening by adding silica. Silica is the main ingredient of things like glass and the main ingredient of most rocks. So if silica surrounds the iron, it can inhibit this corrosion process and keep it from rusting. Interesting. So I added silica, a particular kind of silica, very fine. Silica fume, it's called. It just floats in the air. It's just a few clusters of silica molecules together. But the silica I used, as it turned out, was very old, decades old. When I mixed that silica with the iron, there was this unexpected, surprising, and unwanted reaction. What was that reaction? The iron obviously was combining, or in some way reacting with the silica. It was giving off bubbles of gas. It was getting hot. It was changing color from gray to green to orange. It was oxidizing. Exactly the opposite of what I wanted to have happen. So it was almost combusting? Well, that's a very insightful comment because corrosion, which is has as its more technical term, oxidation, is a kind of burning, you might say, to loosely use that word. When wood and paper burn, they are oxidizing very quickly. They're going from one form of carbon to carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. carbon dioxide. They're oxidizing. So the same thing was happening here. As it turned out, I mean, I spent mm, several months trying to figure out what went wrong. What was this reaction? What was happening? I bought new silica fume, fresh, and there was no such reaction. It did what I first expected it to just 
kind of coat the iron and inhibit it. To get to the bottom line of the story, after several months, I came across this document put out by some industrial company, a maker of silica fume, and it warned the users, keep the container tightly closed, otherwise it will absorb CO2 from the air. That's when the Eureka moment came on. The light bulb came on. Oh, that was what happened. I looked at my old silica fume, and it was yellow instead of snow white like it is when it's fresh. It had absorbed so much CO2 that had changed color, and that was what it was bringing to the iron and reacting with it. It wasn't the silica itself. It was what it was carrying, which was all that CO2. And that's when I understood, oh, iron in water combining with CO2 forms this has a strong reaction, forms this very strong product. And that's when I thought it might be a cement. So basically, if you have to put it in um, chemistry form, so you have ferrous oxide is uh, iron? It's just ferrous. Here we have to get into some Latin terms. Ferrous, ferric, and ferrum. Latin word for iron is ferrum, as I understand it. Not that I'm a Latin speaker. But then when it oxidizes, it becomes ferrous iron. It loses two electrons. And then it will keep oxidizing, lose another electron, become ferric iron, iron three. So it's losing electrons. That's what oxidizing means. They, you call it oxidizing because in the early years of discovering the process and thinking about it and revealing it, the primary oxidizer is oxygen. So they just call it it's oxidizing, but there are other elements that will oxidize, that will steal electrons away. So that's what's happening when iron is rusting. Oxygen is electrophilic. It loves electrons and it will pull these electrons right off of the iron mm -hmm. and then share those electrons back with the iron and form an iron oxide that now are bound together. So how did you apply what happened there to come up with this technology. Let me segue off of that point and say, when metallic iron is made, when steel is formed, the key part of the process is to separate that oxygen from the iron. That's what happens in these big furnaces, the Bessemer open hearth furnace, with all of that heat and with kind of a raw carbon source, coke, Oxygen start vibrating so violently that they can start separating and be pulled away by the carbon. Now you're left with pure iron, pig iron. Mm -hmm. And that's the basis of the whole Iron Age, to get to heat hot enough to drive the oxygens off with other chemistry involved. Okay, enough of that. Now this raw, pure, you might say naked iron is very useful for making all sorts of things, as, as is cement. Nails, hammers, tools, vehicles, knives, forks, plows, all the contrivances of our modern civilization is based on that process of removing the oxygens from iron and making pure iron and then turning it into steel. But as I said, the iron wants to go back, wants to, metaphorically speaking, return to that oxidized form. What I was able to discover is that you can use CO2 instead of regular oxygen, O2, 
and have the iron react with CO2 and bond with that and make an iron carbonate. So it's not just iron and oxygen, it's iron and CO2 carbonate, actually, CO3, iron CO3. So it's a little bit of a reversal of the cement process, right? Because the cement is driving off CO2 from a carbonate, calcium carbonate. I'm taking the CO2 back out of the atmosphere, combining it with raw, pure elemental iron and making an iron carbonate. But how did you know this would be a good binding agent? I did not. That required some real testing, some scientific investigation. When I returned to the lab after this botched first experiment where the iron reacted with this silica that turned out to have lots of CO2 absorbed onto it, I looked in the trash can and there were the pieces that I had tossed and said, well, you know, that didn't work. And I pulled those pieces. Fortunately, the, the maintenance people did not dump the garbage can during the night. Otherwise, none of this would have happened. But I pulled out the pieces from the trash can and noticed that they were quite hard, really hard, just in, you know, the 14 hours since I had made it. And I thought, that's when the light bulb came on. I thought, well, it didn't work in the way that I wanted it to, but it worked in a different way so well and made such a hard product, I thought, hmm, maybe this process can be cultivated and refined and optimized so that we can make a very good hard cement and capture CO2 in the process. So were you able to replicate this after that? Not very well. That's often the case, right? When you see something serendipitously, you don't know really what nature is doing because things can be more complicated than you realize. And even in a seemingly simple reaction like that, the silica was playing some role. And so over the next few years, I was able to refine the process to where I not only replicated it, but I improved upon it Mm -hmm. and made, if not ideal, at least a much better product if by better you mean harder, stronger, more durable. And that's what I was trying to achieve at that point. So is your technology patented? Yes, I dutifully revealed it or disclosed it, which is the technical term. I disclosed the apparent discovery to the Office of Technology Transfer, Tech Transfer Office at the University of Arizona. That's where I was doing the research at the time. And just like at any large company, all the professors and researchers and even students at the university, if they make a discovery that's potentially valuable, are by protocol required to disclose it to the university. It becomes the property of the university. And this is supposed to be a good thing, not some kind of theft. It's just because they are supplying us the researchers with all of the equipment and the facilities. They're putting a a huge investment in all of this and all of us. Mm -hmm. It's a partnership. And that's what I did. I disclosed it to the technology transfer office and they eventually applied for and finally received a patent on this composition. When was that? That was in 2006. So now it's quite some time ago. In 2007, The patenting process began, and it took six years to complete. 
it was a long time coming. It was a complicated patent and an expensive one, as it turned out. But eventually it was assigned or awarded to the University of Arizona in 2013. So did you retain any rights to the patent? Oh, yes. Um, As the inventor, I get rights to any sort of licensing agreement. For example, if the university was able to license the patent to commercialize the ferroc material to some large company, I would get some percentage of it, depending on how much it is and how drawn out the payment process is. So that's a complicated legalistic and bureaucratic process, but it's been going on now for almost 10 years. The patent expires in 2027. So by that time, we either need to have other patents on it, or it becomes open, part of the public domain, and then anyone can use it which is not necessarily a bad thing because if it's helpful to avoid some carbon generation, some CO2 emissions, that's really ultimately the idea is that we become a global, a global remedy in part for the you know, high carbon emissions that our civilization creates. So have you received any funding to help you test this, help you apply this? Yes, there has been some funding from government agencies and their grants. I think the first funding came from the Environmental Protection Agency. That was in 2011. And the EPA at that time, under the President Obama administration, had made CO2 reduction their number one priority. The leader of the EPA, the so-called administrator, the head of the EPA was Lisa Jackson, And she was a staunch advocate for using the resources of the EPA to bring down carbon emissions. It was a form of air pollution, which seems straightforward to us at this time. But back then, it was a political and legalistic and scientific argument that had to be made for taking that approach. Anyway, the funding came from them to demonstrate practical use of FEROC on a Native American reservation, the Tohono O'odham Native Nation. Tohono O'odham are their own words for themselves. It means desert people, Tohono O'odham, desert people. Used to be called Papago, starting with the Spanish. And that nation, that reservation is just west of Tucson, And the EPA liked the idea of bringing together a green technology, carbon negative, meaning it reduces CO2 in the environment to a small amount, but still on principle, it was carbon negative. And then combine that green technology with a underrepresented population, as they're called, without much economic opportunities. And that's what we did. We combined the technology with students at the Tohono Autumn Community College. I gave them training and we made things, to put it simply. We made things. We made pavers, we made blocks, we made walls, we made slabs, we made even a small domed building in the style, the ancient style of the Tohono Autumn people themselves. A little domed building 
that was halfway buried in the soil to help keep it cool in the summer. That went on for three, four years with the EPA funding. Talk about your relationship with the Native American community. It was a good relationship and continues to this day. I'm still in touch with them. In fact, this week I'll be meeting with them again about recycling glass. That's an aspect of the whole Ferroc project. Let me just briefly interject and say one of the problems with Portland cement, back to the aggregate issue, is that when crushed up glass is used as an aggregate with Portland cement, it doesn't work so well. There is a reaction, a bad reaction called the alkali silica reaction. Portland cement is so alkaline that it partially dissolves glass and creates a weak bond. And that's what this so-called alkali silica reaction is. There is no such reaction with ferroc. It combines well with glass. It bonds tightly with glass. So we discovered that early on too. So out on the native nation, back to that, mm-hmm. they had a glass problem. And they were 70 miles from the city of Tucson's landfill. So they had to collect glass and take it all the way into the city to dump it and then pay for that. So we combined Ferroc using EPA funding and combined the Ferroc with the glass to make our own concrete. You know, I was saying before, Portland cement is a binder and the sand and gravel is the aggregate. It's all put together to make a concrete. We use none of that except for the water. We use Ferroc as the binder, an iron-based binder, and crushed glass bottles as our aggregate and our only aggregate. No sand, no gravel. And that worked quite well. The ferroc bound very strongly with the silica of the glass, back to the silica connection. And that became very important on the nation because they had lots of glass bottles strewn throughout the desert. And we collected them and crushed them up. The obvious follow-up question to this is, how strong is the material that you invented, created, and compare that with cement? And that seems like an obvious question, but I have to admit that for the first two or three years, we never even thought about it. By we, meaning me and my associates, especially out on the uh, Indian nation, we just wanted to have something strong enough that it actually worked and you know didn't fall apart. It was only later when some scientific research was done at Arizona State University by Professor Naranan Nathalath and his graduate student Sumanta Das that to everyone's surprise we discovered lo and behold it's actually stronger than Portland cement in some ways and I never expected that. Mm-hmm. Well, for example, in flexural strength, normally you don't think of Portland cement as having much flexibility, and you would be right, it does not. It's very brittle. But the ferroc can bend more than Portland cement or concrete made with Portland cement or any Portland cement product. Ferroc can bend more without breaking, and it can take more stress without bending. In other words, it holds together more cohesively, and they call that flexural strength, which is a combination of tensile strength and compressive strength. And that is also related to its greater toughness, 
and it's greater crack resistance. So if, even if there is a little crack created, ferroc will not break apart as readily as Portland sunlight. So the exciting part of what he just told me is I'm thinking it can be used in earthquake-prone zones. It can be used in skyscrapers. Maybe you don't need the steel rods inside because they put the steel rods to make, help the Sears Towers move a little bit, to give it a little bit of that flex. Would your product be sort of a substitute for that or would it just be strong enough in case of an earthquake or would it also give the flex that a tall structure needs? Well, that's another very insightful and significant issue that you raise. And the answer is, to a certain point, yes, the greater toughness and flexural strength of ferroc could substitute for some reinforcement that might be required in regular concrete. It's interesting you mentioned the towers and the swaying. It's, I think, very relevant to point out that when the um, World Trade Center buildings replaced and rebuilt to make certain that they would never fall like that again, they created this concrete core at the center of them that goes all the way up to the top. And I think it's like 14 or is it even 18 feet in diameter. And that is made with very super strong, so-called high-strength cement and resulting in a, in a much stronger concrete. And the whole building hangs on that concrete core. So even if, God forbid, a plane hit them again, they would not collapse. No matter how much heat there was, it wouldn't, at least out of any normal fire, would not soften the concrete core. It might, the steel might bend, which was apparently the problem in the last one. Ferroc is in that category of stronger than average cements and also has greater fire resistance. So yes, what you suggest seems to be a very positive and potentially significant pathway of development that we want to explore. So this is a very pertinent question, and we spoke about it a little bit over text messages this morning. Where are you with Ferroc right now? It's been 10 years since you got your patent, and your patent is about to expire in 2027. You have six years to bring the solution to market and help reduce the greenhouse gases, help absorb the carbon dioxide while making a product which can be a good substitute for cement? That is a question I deal with every day, day in and day out for years. And I think the best way to begin to answer it, there are many aspects to the answer, but probably the best place to start at least is that the Portland cement industry, to paraphrase, too big to fail, Cement industry is too big to change, too big to replace. It's so utterly dominant that we've kind of already made our commitment to this way of constructing the world. And to change requires such a huge outlay of money to what they call in the industry retool, because the ferro process is different enough from making 
Portland cement that you can't just simply switch out Portland cement with Ferroc and expect to continue business as usual. Mm-hmm. And the Portland cement industry is only getting bigger all the time. For example, the cement industry of China, the state cement venture, the company, is planning to build 100 new cement plants across Southern Asia and Africa, I think in the next 10 years or so. They have not gotten the memo, so to speak, that we need to back off. There will be more cement apparently made in 10 years than there is now, and that much more CO2 being created. So it's how to stop this juggernaut of an industry or even slow it down. That's not going to be easy. Having said that, what role does the government play with its policy, with its laws to bring about this change, especially the new government with this $1 trillion infrastructure bill? I think they do play a role. It may be the critical role because I don't know whether the industry itself could possibly you know, do this to themselves. to Or self-regulate. Self-regulate. And that's the key word, right? I make a comparison with asbestos was, in many ways, a wonderful material, fireproof, natural, readily available, cheap, worked really well. It's fibrous. It adds strength to a cement. Fibrous cement, asbestos cement. It's very strong, very fire resistant, mm-hmm. and only one problem, but it was a big one. It kills people. It gets into our lungs and it causes asbestosis and causes respiratory decline and eventual death. So it was eliminated from the market. Would that have happened had it not been for government regulation? I mean, those fights, those legal battles continue to this day. So Portland cement is not asbestos. It's not the material itself that's dangerous. Once made, it works well and is fairly safe. It's the process. And that happens you know, behind the fences and the gates of these cement plants. And most people don't even think about it. But now we're beginning to think about it. And the government certainly is thinking about it. And I believe that over the next few years, it will become more and more of an issue. And, and led by government agencies. So the push, do you think it has to come from the citizens? Yes, and that's another aspect to it, and is already happening. I get lots of emails and phone calls and contacts from people who are asking me about Ferroc because their customers, these are business people, company managers, whose customers are asking of them Is there something else you can give me besides this product made with Portland cement? I've heard about Portland cement, the customer says. It's contributing to global warming. I don't want to use it anymore. And that is happening more and more frequently. I think the general process might be described by saying, for a long time, we've known about green energy, solar, wind power versus burning fossil fuels. Materials and their role in all of this were pretty much ignored. Now people are waking up that the materials themselves, the making of these materials, like Portland cement and steel and others, 
contribute, those processes of manufacturing these materials contributes to global warming. And that message, that understanding is getting out there more and more and rising in consciousness. And so I think that will be the push and maybe the government will pull, so to speak, by offering these companies, maybe rather than regulating them so hard, pull them along by offering some incentives and some large grants to help pay for this transition to greener materials. Can your technology be scaled? Well, that's no longer a $64,000 question. It's a trillion-dollar question because that's roughly, give or take a couple hundred billion, the economics of the cement industry globally. And when I speak with investors, that is something they always ask. It's one of the first questions, can it be scaled? Because they know it's a trillion-dollar industry and a billion-ton industry. We're talking about mountains of limestone being removed and processed all over the planet, which, by the way, is probably already past its peak and going to be causing more and more stress on the cement industry itself, just like running out of oil and other big commodity items like that. And my answer is yes, but it would take a tremendous effort not only just financially, but in terms of infrastructure and incentives to develop with the iron and steel industry, the basis, the foundation for making ferroc at some giant scale. And that's interesting. That foundation really would rely more on the iron and steel industry because ferroc is iron-based, as we've been discussing earlier. So it won't use calcium carbonate, it will use some of the same materials that go to making iron and steel and could compete with them. But there may be ways of using iron ore and types of iron waste that are not so good for making steel. And those could be diverted to making ferroc, at least on a much bigger scale. How about foundry dust or something like that? That's what I use now. Those kinds of materials. What is ideal is to find a waste material that is already a dust. The smaller the particle, the greater the overall surface area. That's from, you know, basic high school chemistry or from cooking. You want a fine flour to make the best pastry. If it's too coarse, it doesn't work as well. The finer the particles, the better for cooking, the better for making cements, including ferroc. So can ferroc be recycled? Yes, it can be ground up. And typically there's enough metallic iron, the raw, pure elemental iron that we spoke of earlier, still in there to help trigger a secondary generation of a cemented ferroc binder. Plus, all of the iron carbonate is reactivated and, and exposed and acts as a, a surface a kind of a seed crystal for growing more iron carbonate. So your technology is very similar to another gas that we had on Mindful Businesses called Rhino Plastics. And they take foundry dust and uh, mix it up with plastic to make bricks. And this founder of Rhino Plastic Blocks 
was very vehement about not patenting it because he said, the problem is so large. How can I alone solve this? So he has it open. He will assist anybody to set it up. I understand and I agree with that sentiment of that inventor. And I, I'm ambivalent, to say the least, about the whole patenting process, especially for technologies that might help solve the global problem of global warming, which will only be solved by a global response. So to try to create some sort of protection around intellectual property when it would be most helpful for the world to open it up to everyone seems the right thing to do. I understand that and I agree with that. If you had to do it again, would you patent it or not? No, I would not. And when the patent expires in 2027, it will open up into the public domain naturally. And even before that, I might mention it is only a U.S. patent outside the borders of the United States of America. It has no jurisdiction. The patent has no protection. And actually, most of the interest I am receiving in the Ferroc technology is from outside of the United States. I have ongoing, frequent contact with groups of people who are trying to develop Ferroc or some Ferroc-like product in many countries around the world, primarily India. I get emails almost every week from someone in India, and we are just building growing network, starting with the Valor Institute of Technology in Chennai, but also in Australia, England, Norway, Sweden, Italy, Mexico, South Africa. There is a very interested group. I'm working with them and Indonesia, and it goes on. Those are the primary ones. And relevant to this issue about patenting or opening things up, I foresee future development of Ferroc as a more of an informal network of like-minded, interested individuals around the planet, comparing notes, doing our own tests, helping each other to develop the material technology and to expand its use. If you had one dream, what would you want to make this project successful? I'm ready for that question. I've heard it over the years, and I had no answer for a while, but now I do. And the, the dream would be to make something like an Arcosanti in Ferroc. Arcosanti is an architectural experiment here in Arizona, north of here, north of Phoenix, started by Italian-American architect Paolo Soleri. Mm -hmm. And he had dreams of making these gigantic structures, basically, to put it somewhat simplistically, a city in a building, giant structures where everything, all the systems, all the processes, both mechanical and social, would be interacting in a very dynamic and intensive way. That was his dream. But what would be ideal is if I or the the growing network of people interested in Ferroc could have enough financial and other resources, the land, the workforce, 
to create a complex of buildings and structures and experimental designs, all out of Farrakh, to demonstrate and to showcase every physical answer to the questions like the ones you've been asking me. A kind of outdoor, large-scale laboratory to see what we can do with this material in one focused site. That would be the dream. Wishing that all your dreams come true. Thank you so much, David, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you, Vidya. I enjoyed being here. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses. <laughs>